Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. And welcome back to Willy Willy Harry Stee, my personal trek through the story of the English monarchy based on the rhyme I learnt at school in the 1960s, like so many other school children at the time. It was a way of remembering the order of our kings and queens. And I'm going through them in this series in chronological order and in the process, hopefully giving a general overview of English history, of how it all fits together as well as making sense of some of the lesser-known kings and queens, such as the monarch featured in this episode, our second Willie, William II, having done his much better-known father, William I, William the Conqueror, in our previous episode. But in many ways, this episode is about brothers. William II and his brothers, but also, wider than that, thinking about sibling rivalry in general and how it might have affected our history. And after the invasion of England by William I, the history of the next few years was very heavily influenced by infighting between William's sons. William had at least nine children. We're not sure of the exact number. We know that there were four sons, but the the daughters uh, we know less about because, let's face it, at the time, women were not considered as important. So unless his daughters married some influential and powerful foreign man, they tended not to be particularly recorded in history. So we don't know exactly how many there were. And we know a lot more about the boys than we do about the girls. And when I was talking to people about doing this podcast, some of them said things like, oh, that's great. Yes, you could look at British history and and you could really bring uh, women to the forefront and tell women's history, which has been neglected. Or they would say, oh, yeah, you can talk about, the, you know, the, the ordinary British people and um, the history of the, of the working man. And then they would say, of course, it'll all be about colonialism, won't it? And whilst, of course, I will be touching on those subjects, that is not what this podcast is about. I said in the first episode, it's quite an old school approach. It's an old school narrative approach. It's about the great men and yes, some women of history, although there were only a handful of female British monarchs in the more than 40 that have sat on the throne. So yes, I will be talking about women, I will be talking about the working man, I will be talking about colonialism, but I will mainly be talking about the monarchs and seeing history through that filter. Uh, And today, yes, we're talking about William II and his brothers. And it seems actually that, that William I um, didn't particularly think much of his sons. He was never quite sure what to do with them and, and how they were going to reign after he passed on. 
and it can be seen in his nicknames for them. His eldest son was Robert, and William's nickname for him was Kurt Hose, which roughly translates as short pants. Hose is the sort of medieval garment that is a cross between trousers and, and stockings. It's what men wore. The legs would be independent, uh, each one put on separately and, and laced to your belt, and you would have some kind of cloth covering for your bits. And so these, you know, in the summer, they could be more lightweight. In the winter, they were heavier material, something like a bit like wearing chaps, I suppose, in some ways. And in later Middle Ages, you know, you could see people playing around with them, having them different, each leg a different color and things like that. And that would be covered. You would wear a tunic on your top half and hose on your bottom half. Later on, we get the famous doublet and hose. Uh, so hose, it can mean stockings. It can mean trousers but essentially Kurt hose Kurt is the French court meaning short from where well, from where we get our word Kurt so it's short stockings short trousers but essentially he was mocking Robert for being a bit of a short ass and it stuck Robert is still referred to as Robert Kurt hose William's second son was Richard you don't need to remember that name or think too much about him Richard, not long after the Norman invasion, when Richard was in his early 20s, he was out hunting in one of his father's new forests, which was imaginatively called the New Forest, and, and still is a thousand years later. So Richard's out riding and he comes into contact with a low-hanging branch and is removed from history. That's the end of Richard, so you can forget all about him. Next, we have William. He was called William Rufus which means William the Red. Nobody's quite sure why. It's possible he had reddish hair when he was younger, which then turned blonde, or he had a, a ruddy red complexion. He was certainly fond of his food and drink. Um, so that may be where that came from. Uh, youngest son was called Henry, and he sort of kept his head down. He didn't particularly have a memorable nickname. And at the time, as the youngest son, he wouldn't have been considered of much importance. So maybe William didn't bother giving him a derogatory nickname. And so these brothers, like many brothers, got involved in a lot of sibling rivalry. I know quite a lot about brothers. I have three um, and no sisters. I also have three sons and no daughters. And my wife has two brothers and no sisters. So I know a lot about brothers and sons, but I know very little about sisters and daughters. And all families in many ways are the same. There is sibling rivalry of all sorts. And, you know, it, if there is a massive royal estate to be fought over, the rivalry can get pretty heated. Uh, but mostly children are competing when they're young for their parents' love and attention and respect. And this can cause tensions within a family. Classically, you know, we have the, the setup of the triumvirate of the, the oldest son being the sort of trailblazer, the one that their parents try out all their parenting on. And they tend to grow up quite serious, a little bit anxious sometimes, the sort of keeper of the idea of the family and very much trying to sort of be their father's representative. And then you get the second son, who, if he becomes the middle son, becomes the the difficult middle child. Is the old joke about Osama bin Laden as being a, a typical a difficult middle child as the 25th child of 50. Because the second son, even if there isn't a third son, will always be the second son. They will always be the the one that came along after, the one that, you know, in a system where sons are going to inherit and take power, they will not inherit, they will not take power. The phrase heirs and spares has been banded around quite a lot lately because of all the controversy surrounding Prince Harry. Harry, of course, is a diminutive of Harold, um, but also of Henry. Um, is quite interesting as we'll be looking at the story of Robert, William and Henry in history and there are parallels with the contemporary story of of William and Harry. 
and Harry is born into that difficult position where he knows unless something awful happens he will never be king he will never sit on the throne he will only ever be a, a footnote you know you go back in history people don't remember the brothers the sisters the younger brothers the younger sisters of our, of our monarchs they don't get talked about very much harry has no real role beyond flying helicopters and having dinners with ambassadors that that william doesn't have time to have dinner with never have a really strong clear role and as the duke of york you can see there are a lot of duke of yorks in history that caused problems not least his uncle andrew so harry's tales of arguments with wills are quite interesting so uh, you know it, it, we were in the kitchen and he, he pushed me yeah and i, I fell on the dog bowl and it it, it broke and it, it it really quite hurt actually you wonder why he put this in his book is it that he was trying to show that he was exactly like every other family in the world or was he trying to somehow say that he was different because he wasn't different all brothers fight each other i had arguments and fights with my brothers when i was growing up none of them developed into very much as i said before we you know we weren't fighting over any kind of massive inheritance and and um, the stewardship of this family in the future my three boys whenever we called them down for dinner when they were still living at home they would come into the kitchen would instantly start fighting each other grappling each other grabbing each other around the net and pummeling each other and falling to the floor and laughing but it would often tip over into something a bit more extreme as they kind of tried to expel this youthful male energy and you know you can you can see and we try not to to encourage it but but obviously the, the all children are finding their position and they're also trying to work out their relationship with their parents and they want their their parents as I say, they want their parents' love and respect. Uh, it's quite clear in William's family that there was not a great deal of love and respect coming down from William. His wife, Matilda of Flanders, was, was a different proposition. She always supported Robert, sometimes behind William's back, which sometimes caused problems. William himself didn't have a lot of respect for, for these three kids. And the third child in this kind of traditional triumvirate is the the youngest who kind of can get away with anything and their parents will always let them off and the elder child gets quite pissed off it's like you know you never let me do that when i was their age and their parents have tend to relaxed a bit by the time they get to the youngest child and they indulge them it's quite interesting if we if we look at the succession of king william and his sons the parallels with succession a fantastic brian cox TV series with Brian Cox as the king, Logan Roy. You know, calling him Roy is not a desperately subtle way of saying he is the king. And obviously this story is inspired by the Murdochs and the, the, the Murdoch dynasty, um, again, which is rife with sibling rivalry. Um, and in some ways there are many parallels uh, between the children of William I and the children of Logan Roy. Kendall Roy, the, the oldest, very much like Robert. He'd like to be tough, but he's not very good at it. He's constantly trying to go behind his father and undermine him, but he can't ever quite pull it off and carry it through. And then you've got Roman, who is the sort of classic youngest child who can kind of get away with anything and is a bit sexually all over the place and um, is a bit of a mess and likes his partying. In the case of William Sung, he's probably closer to William II than to Henry. Henry, the youngest, sort of keeps out of things, doesn't initially get involved in all the the, the succession, and and so and so has similarities with with Shiv Roy in in succession. So I mean, it doesn't exactly fit. But when I think of poor old Bobby Shortpants, the eldest, I always do think of Kendall Roy. So we've got these three sons. And William, on his deathbed, has to divide up his his possessions and his belongings between them. He doesn't really want to give Robert anything. They have spent their lives fighting each other, arguing. And this goes back to, in many ways, an incident that happens in 1077, about 10 years after the, the Norman invasion. 
where the three sons are in Normandy. And it's in this period, the ongoing period, right through William's reign and through the reign of his children. Constantly, Normandy is at war with its, with its neighbours, um, occasionally attacking, sacking a city, taking over, and then losing it, and occasionally making an alliance with the French king, and occasionally the French king uh, going to war against them. And at 1077, in a castle in, in Normandy, Robert Curthose is uh, downstairs having a serious conversation with his um, loyal retinue and local lords about the situation and uh, what they're going to do about it. And upstairs on the balcony, William and Henry are getting pissed and playing dice. And having finished playing dice, they decide to play a prank on, on Robert and they, they empty their piss pot over the balustrade of the balcony onto Robert's head, uh, which they think is enormously funny. And Robert doesn't. It's like, oh, Dad, you know, it's like they've emptied the whole piss pot onto my head, yeah? William thinks it's quite funny too and doesn't punish the other two boys. Robert goes off in a huff. He takes his men with him. They go and sack a nearby castle and take it over and declare war on William, which is one of the many occasions they go to battle against each other. And, and Robert enlists the help of the French king to fight against his own father. And in a battle a couple of years later, Robert actually gets into hand-to-hand -hand combat with his father without realising it. Covered in his armour and his helmet, William cries out, and it's only then that Robert recognises his voice and realises it's, it's his father and, and spares him. So this is the sort of relationship that they have. So when William is dying, he has to deal with his sons and what they get. Normandy has a very strong and unshakable system of primogeniture, which essentially means that everything goes to the, the eldest son, the whole, the whole estate. So he has, his hands are tied. He has to give Normandy to Robert. It's interesting, actually, the system of inheritance and why it was developed and why it actually was so important. We looked in the previous episode at how important land ownership was. It was owning land that gave you an income. So it gave you money. It gave you wealth, it gave you influence, and it gave you power. The more land you have, the more power you have, the more wealth you have. And the problem is, unless you maintain that landmass, you lose your power. So if you didn't have this idea that you give everything to the eldest son, and you divided everything up equally, within a few generations, you would have no great estates. You would just have individual houses with their gardens. And this would mean that actually things become quite hard to, to manage. We saw how William created the Doomsday Book as a way of keeping track of his country and these great estates. And so it works well for the king because they get a big income from these estates and it's easy to govern. You only have a few people that you have to tax or get to do things for you. And if that gets watered down and broken up, it gets impossible. So that system of inheritance was really important as a way of holding everything together. So William gives Normandy to Robert Shortpants. And as a snub to Robert, he sort of gives England to William Rufus, his second surviving son at the time. I mean, it's ambiguous. He may have left it open, but he definitely didn't directly say to Robert, England is yours. And as we've seen, the other brother, Richard, is out of the picture, having connected with a low-hanging branch. And to Henry, he gives a large sum of money, and it's kind of, you know, this will keep you happy and wealthy till, till the end of your days, and you can, you can keep out of things. But William must have known that this was going to cause huge problems. So immediately after he dies, William goes to rushes to Westminster Abbey to get coronated to make sure that this is uh, this is set in stone. Robert immediately starts plotting against him, and Edgar Atheling, who we looked at before, who was the sole surviving Anglo-Saxon aristocrat who has any claim on the throne, he also starts plotting. But the main thing that happens is that the powerful dukes and lords have to decide who they're going to support. Are they going to support William or are they going to support Robert? And if you're a powerful landholder in Normandy, you're, you're obviously going to lean towards 
Robert. And Bishop Odo comes back into the story here, having been pardoned and released from prison by William on his deathbed. Uh, he's William's half-brother. He sides with Robert. They raise an army and Odo takes the army over to England to confront William. Now, Robert was not a great military commander. He was not a great leader. He was possibly a bit of a coward. He was never quite sure exactly what to do, but he made the mistake of not going to England himself. He never turned up to lead his own revolt against William. William looks round for support. He manages to bribe some of Robert's supporters with offering them more land in England. So William, Rufus, defeats Odo's invasion force and he then takes his own army into Normandy to deal with short pants. And William defeats Robert and neutralises him. He then takes over some of his lands in Normandy and Robert is forced to agree to behave himself and not challenge William. But he never quite sticks to that. So William has got problems with Robert in the south. There's always the threat of a Viking um, invasion, so he's always on the lookout for that. And noticing that there is unrest in the kingdom and that things might be up for grabs, King Malcolm III of Scotland has regular forays into the north of England, trying to take over, trying to expand his rule. You have these big rivers that tend to mark as the sort of boundaries between countries, and the Tweed is the sort of official border between Scotland and England. And he would like very much to extend further south and get as far as the Tees which is the next big river down. Edgar Atheling, the Anglo-Saxon pretender, goes and helps him occasionally. So William is constantly fighting and pushing back against these um, various incursions. He seems a pretty good military commander. Eventually he defeats the, the threat from Malcolm and Malcolm is ultimately defeated at the Battle of Ulmwick and he's killed and William manages to make a fairly good deal with his uh, successor that, that, that they're not going to cause problems. So William does manage to sort of settle things down, but there, there's always this ongoing um, rumbling, this bubbling up of rebellion. He was not as powerful as his father. He was not as good at, at keeping these dukes and their lords in line. He also had problems with the church. As various bishops died or, or moved on, he made a point of not immediately replacing them so that he could take their income for himself because the bishops and the archbishops, just like the, the lords and the dukes, held large areas of land and so had a big income. And whilst they would pay a portion of that to the king, most of it they would keep for themselves. So William the Conqueror, his Archbishop of Canterbury was Lanfranc, or Lanfranc, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, who was a very astute politician and advisor to William. It, was, it gave him very good support. He died soon after William came to the throne and he appointed his own Archbishop of Canterbury, who was a Norman Italian called Anselm, who he hoped would, would be a bit like Longfranc as a, as a sort of his, his ally. But Anselm doesn't seem to have particularly liked William. There's not much evidence that William himself was particularly pious. And what you have, and, and it's important to, to deal with this because it has such an effect right down through British history, is the relationship between the monarchy the church, the aristocracy, and the people. Now, a monarch coming to the throne, what they would love is to have absolute power, to be able to do exactly what they want, with nobody to argue with them, nobody to push back against what they want to do. They could take as much money as they want from their people and behave exactly as they want. And they have been absolutely... Um, autocratic, despotic rulers in history who've managed that. Um, but no king of England ever really has. Because first of all, you have the church. So the monarch says, OK, I rule over the people. But the church says, yes, but the church rules over their souls. Whilst you may be the most powerful person in England, you are not as powerful as God. God has dominion over us all. 
and he speaks to us through the Pope. So the Pope has more authority than you as the monarch. Therefore, we in the church can temper your behavior. If we don't like what you're doing, we can try and stop you. And we have authority. We have a separate authority to you. And we can see right through history the king trying to get their own way and going up against the church. We see it fairly soon after William II's reign when we get to Henry II and his arguments with Thomas Becket, which led to Thomas Becket's assassination. And William's relationship with Anselm was very similar in that Anselm kept saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't keep taking all our money. And obviously we see it massively in the story of Henry VIII later on, ultimately breaking away from the Catholic Church and introducing Protestantism. But also in this equation, you have the landowners, the lords, the aristocracy. Again, the king cannot just tell them what to do. He can't tax them until they've nothing left. He can't do order them to do whatever he wants because a monarch can only rule by consent. It's a system, and if the system breaks down, monarch is not going to hold the throne. And this happens many times through history, as we will see. William has got to keep the lords happy, keep the aristocrats happy. Whilst he can tax them, he can't tax them too much. Whilst they are obliged to give him a portion of their income every year, and they are obliged to supply troops and knights in times of war, the king can't push this too much. He can manipulate things by getting people close to him and then giving them large bits of land in return for their support. But it's always a delicate balance. And the king, throughout their reign, it would, they would travel around and, and on various kind of holy feast days, they would be, you know, they, they might be in Winchester one time or in, in York or in Leicester, whatever, and they would hold court there. And all the lords and the aristocrats would come and they would air their grievances and the king would get their assurances on things and they would sign various edicts to try and keep the whole thing together. But again, British history is shaded by this constant to and fro, this pulling backwards and forwards between the monarchy and the aristocracy. This eventually solidifies into being parliament and parliament originally is just a collection of the wealthiest most powerful men in England, but later on become something different. But that's essentially the, this three-way pull between the monarch, parliament and the church. And even from the start, the British king did not have ultimate power. They were not in a position to just make a decree and everyone would, would, would go along with what they said. And often this setup, if you, if you remove the monarchy from the, from the equation, is known as the three estates those who fight, those who pray, and those who work. Those who fight are the lords and the aristocrats and the knights, and they perpetuate this myth that they are looking after everybody and defending them. Then we have those who pray, which is the church. And again, as we've seen, they, they have huge power. They have lots of estates, have big income, they have wealth, and they have the power of the Pope, and they have the power of the rest of Europe behind them. They can call on all these other religious kings throughout Europe, all the way up to the Pope. And finally, we have those who work, which is everyone else, which is sort of often described as a peasantry, but it's more complex than that because it's got merchants and manufacturers, it's got blacksmiths, it's got farm labourers, it's got builders. Right at the very bottom, we have what were known as villains or villains, I'm never quite sure how you pronounce it, who essentially are owned by the landowners. Their houses would be on the landowner's property, owned by the landowners, and they would own whoever lived in those houses. So they were virtually slaves, and it was very difficult for them to, to move, to get out of that position, and to have any great power. And they were part of this system whereby the lords were saying, well, look, we look after you. Aren't we great? Us great knights, in return for which they take all the peasants' money which has persisted to this day with capitalism, where the people at the top basically take the money from the people at the bottom. So that's the system we have. William wasn't as good as his father at working that system, and he fell out with Anselm. He did sort of extort money from some churches when he needed extra money for things as well. So the, the church didn't really like William 
As well as everything else, he was trying to squeeze money out of them by taxing them, which they weren't used to. And because history was being written by priests and monks, chiefly in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, William was not presented in a good light and didn't go down well at all in the historical records of his time. He was not presented to posterity as a good or popular king. He was accused of just feasting and eating and drinking and not really looking after his people. And he was also accused of sodomy. There wasn't really a concept of homosexuality at the time. There were just various practices that people got up to. William didn't marry. He didn't have any children. There is some evidence that he was a bit of a womanizer as well. He dressed flamboyantly. I don't want to deal with uh, cliches and stereotyping, but the, you know, the most we can say with any authority is he was probably bisexual, but he certainly didn't have any kids. William needs some support against Robert and against Anselm, who is trying to undermine William and say that he shouldn't be King of England. So William goes to Pope Urban. There's some very complicated politics going on in Europe, particularly over the Pope. And there's a period where there are two popes. Uh, there is the official pope and there is another sort of semi-official pope who set up in Avignon. But essentially we've got a sort of civil war going on in Europe between the supporters of the official pope Urban II and the guy who's known as the anti-pope Clement III in Avignon. And so various kings and rulers in Europe are allying themselves with one or the other. William II astutely allies himself with Urban II and makes an alliance with him. And Urban says William is the legitimate ruler in England and stop fighting against it. So William's in a position now where things look pretty settled, apart from his uh, ongoing niggles with the church. And things are going fairly swimmingly with him. And what helps him next is that Pope Urban II announces that he is going to send a crusade into the Holy Lands. This is the first crusade. Now, for, for centuries, the Holy Land has been under Muslim control. But it hasn't been a huge problem. Pilgrims, whether priests, monks, farmers, or even kings, if they want to go to, to a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, it's fine. Nobody's stopping them. But now a new, slightly more aggressive bunch of Muslim rulers have taken control, the, the Seljuk Turks. And possibly, as a pretense, Urban says, we are going to free the Holy Lands from these oppressors and make them Christian again. I think there were probably several motives going on here for Urban. He is slightly insecure in his position. He's managed to win his war against Clement for the time being. But it would be good to kind of have everybody rally around him. And as we know, if you invent a common enemy, then you can unite disparate groups. But also, as we've seen, particularly with what's going on in Normandy, with this constant fighting over land and power and authority, the chance for all these powerful men, or perhaps the second tier, the slightly less powerful, to set off and not only uh, sack foreign cities and steal their wealth, but also there is the chance that they can actually take more land. This seems to be an attractive prospect all around. Robert signs up. Bishop Odo signs up to go out alongside him. But before any of this great army can set off, a guy called Peter the Hermit puts together his own crusade known as the People's Crusade. Just ordinary people who flock to him for his charismatic preaching. There are some knights and soldiers amongst them, but um, it's this crusade of ordinary people who march off through Europe into Eastern Europe, stopping only to persecute and massacre some Jews along the way. Eventually they set sail, get to the Holy Land, where they are immediately slaughtered by the army of the Seljuk Turks. But not long after the official crusade turns up, Odo sadly leaves history at this point. He's died along the way of disease. I mean, you can imagine how awful that crusader camp would have been. All these men stuck together in very unsanitary conditions, no access to good food and clean water. Hundreds, thousands of them must have just died of disease along the way. And even more when they got there. In terms of what the Crusader army wanted to achieve, this Western Christian army, who tended to just be called Franks by the Muslims, 
this was really the only crusade that could be considered a success, and there were many. So after some initial setbacks, the Crusaders took the city of Antioch in 1098 and then reached Jerusalem in the summer of 1099, which they captured after a short siege uh, and then ruthlessly massacred its defenders. A counterattack by another Muslim army was defeated later in the year at the Battle of Ascalon, which then pretty much ended the First Crusade, the objectives having been achieved. Jerusalem was fully in Christian hands. Various Crusader city-states were established and garrisoned before the rest of the army returned home. But in order to take his army with him, because Robert, to sign up to the Crusade, would need to take a great contingent of men with him, he basically loans Normandy to his elder brother, William. They make peace and he says, you know, you give me enough money, I'll go away on this crusade and Normandy is yours till I get back. This is a great offer for, for William because he can really cement his authority and probably schemes of, of nailing everything down before Robert gets back. He has to raise a massive tax to do this and he seems pretty good at raising taxes with, with, with you know, taxation and extortion gives a huge sum of money to Robert. Because this is what people don't really take on board, is just how much money it cost to wage a war. I mean, you know, we see it today with what's happening in the Ukraine. And obviously we can see where the money is going on these hugely expensive uh, weaponry. But, but it, it was ever thus. You had to equip your army. You had to supply the army. You had to pay these men to do your work for you, to fight for you. So you needed large, large sums of money, particularly if you're going to be away for several years, as they were expecting on the crusade. But essentially, William raises it, gives it to Robert. Robert sets off. So William thinks, great, he can get back to a comfortable life of feasting and hunting. And one of the buildings that he's put up is at the Royal Palace in Westminster. He builds this great feasting banqueting hall called Westminster Hall. And Westminster Hall is one of the few parts of the Palace of Westminster that survived the, the devastating fire in the 19th century. It still stands there today, this hall that William II built. And it is the hall in which Elizabeth II's body was, was laid in state for the great funeral, set up on the podium under the flag that seemingly half the country came to visit and walk past. And it's no accident that that's where that happened. The royal family is saying, look, this is our last queen. Here is our next monarch, Charles, who will be taking over, standing next to the coffin in this hall that goes right back to William II, that goes right back a thousand years to the reign of William II. It's built soon after the Norman Conquest. This is unbroken tradition. This is history. This is the um, God-given right of the monarchs to sit upon the throne. It is a great piece of political theatre. So as long as he's feasting, uh, William loves to hunt, um, sets off to the New Forest uh, with his younger brother Henry and his favourite archer, Walter Tyrrell, uh, this nobleman who is considered one of the greatest uh, archers and marksmen and hunters in the country who hunts alongside William. They're out there. I guess they're mainly trying to kill deer. But, oh dear, there's a terrible accident. The next thing we know, William is shot in the chest by Walter Tyrrell with an arrow and he falls down mortally wounded. Now, there is uh, some story at the time that this arrow glanced off a tree and, and hit him. Nobody knows the real truth about what happened. Walter Tyrrell's such an experienced archer. Is it likely that, that he would kill the king in a silly hunting accident? If we take the Game of Thrones approach, we'd say this was definitely a setup. George R. R. Martin took it as the inspiration for the death of King Robert Baratheon, Mark Addy, who dies in a so-called hunting accident set up by his wife. And if we were going to take the crown approach to make, if this was a TV series, the 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 medieval version of the crown where peter morgan is always faced when he when there's an incident in history does he go with the sort of sober 
sensible approach or does he go for the sensationalist conspiracy theory approach? He will always go for the sensationalist approach. And that's what I'm going to go for. I'm going to say that essentially Henry had his brother bumped off. He knew that he didn't have full support of all the, the noblemen. He knew that he wasn't popular with the church. He knew that probably not too many people were going to complain. So it suited him to bump him off. And here's Henry, who's kept out of everything up to this point. He's now got the opportunity. Robert's away. If he gets William out of the way, Henry can take the throne. And whatever the truth of the matter is, Henry rushes off to Winchester to secure the treasury. Walter Tyrrell and his friends quickly bugger off to France, but they're never punished. This is not followed up. There's no investigation. Tyrrell comes back not long after and retakes his place in society and nobody particularly argues with Henry. And to make it worse, William's body is just left lying there. Nobody does anything with it. They all rush off. I think he's found by some local passerby and put on a wagon and taken somewhere. So it's kind of, as soon as the king's dead, it's like, forget him. That's the end of them. We're off to the next one. Henry secures a treasury and gets himself coronated as king of England. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So in our next episode, we'll see what happens when Henry I takes the throne. But in the meantime, I have my special guest on this week, my expert historian, which is the wonderful James Hawes. Hello, James. Good morning, Charlie. It's, it's marvellous to have you here. Now, not least because we've had sort of slight, not least because we've had sort of strange, almost parallel careers in some ways. Um, in the early 90s, I started writing crime books, and I think influenced by the sort of crime writing that was coming out of America. It wasn't so much sort of police detective fiction. It was more just about the world of criminality. And James, you were writing crime books at the same time, weren't you? I was. It's, it is quite strange. Yeah. I mean, I, I started off um, with a book called White Merc with Fins, which uh, should have been, it's, it's tragic, it should have been a great movie because it was, it had, it was optioned by film companies, God knows how many times. It never quite made it to the big screen, sadly, but it was a, it was a laugh in its day and did quite well. Um, yeah, there were strange times when there was this definitely there's this wave of people, as you say, we're talking about. I guess it became things like four layer cake and lock stock a bit later on. This idea yeah. what was really and it wasn't the plot or the cops that were interesting. It was like it was like the gang. You know, I my career got diverted into into doing TV, TV comedy, things like the Fast Show. Um, how did you end up becoming a historian? Well, actually, it's the weirdest thing. I I, I just married um, my wonderful wife who's German and um, her father her, her father was actually in the German army and they're an old, an old Prussian military family and um, I was wheeling our child around uh, in a pram and suddenly a publisher phoned up from through my agent and said you don't know me would you like to write the whole history of Germany for nothing and I thought well that's <laughs> that's a cheek you hadn't it written just... 
Any history at the time? Or... I had actually. I'd written, I'd written a kind of fairly heavyweight book, actually, my sort of in my spare time, which was quite a detailed study of English-German relations before the First World War. Well, I was arguing that right. you know the way we th- way we think of the First World War is coming from surprise, like total left field. It's completely wrong. You know, there'd been this building, massive building of kind of cultural war between Britain and Germany for decades beforehand. It really wasn't a surprise to anyone at all. It was halfway house between being popular and academic, do you know what I mean? But this guy, Ben, had, had read it and uh, asked me to do this for nothing. And I thought he had such a cheek. I agreed. And that became the shortest history of Germany, which, yeah, which to my shock became surprise, yeah, a completely unexpected bestseller, didn't it? In, in, yeah, in, 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 in the world of history. Or something. I got Chinese editions, <laughs> Serbian editions, whatever. And it was a best, big bestseller in Britain. So and I, and, and I, kept, I kept saying it in the bookshops and I saw your name on it and I thought, well, it can't be the same James Hawes who wrote White Work with Thins. Uh, and I also thought, why would anyone want to buy this book or be interested in it? But eventually I picked up a copy. When did that come out? What year are we talking? 2017. Right. So I, I picked up a copy and, and just looked at the first couple of pages and I was instantly hooked. I mean, the style of it is 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 great. It's very... It's very accessible um, and it draws you in and tells an amazing story. And I, and I bought it. I read it really quickly and I thought that that is fantastic because it's about so much more than just the history of Germany, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I, I know, well, I, I'm, I'm very I'm delighted you liked it. And I, I think what interests me really is that a good story is a good story, you know, whether, whether it's you or I writing crime novels you writing a great sketch for the fast show, me writing a history, but whatever it is, the structure of a good story is basically always the same, whether it's fiction, non-fiction, a short story, mm. a drama, or whatever. I'm kind and of reaching towards this kind of unified field theory of storytelling, you know. <laughs> and there's been a big return to, to to narrative history, isn't there, which was kind of out of favor and was seen as being a bit old fashioned, but but now it is it is massive and hugely popular. It is, and I guess it's it's kind of interestingly parallel. You know, talking as as we since we both have written novels, it's interestingly parallel to the triumph of kind of crossover young adult literature. Mm. And I think that what's happened is that both in the kind of history world and in maybe in the novel world, people were just kind of had had enough of whatever you want to call it, experimental, deconstructive, very self conscious mm. mm. kind of literature and very and very academic history. And they really just want a good story to be told again. And and the, the story in the shortest history of Germany is is very much the sort of story of Europe and in and some ways the sort of story of the the EU, isn't it? It is, yeah, because I think people are underestimating with, with Germany. The, the, big, the big thing which most Germans forget is that large chunks of Germany were, were in the Roman Empire for centuries. Um, they're Catholic. They really, they're actually, in some ways, culturally more like France. Whereas the bit, the bit when we think of Germany from the war films, all these guys with sort of scars on their faces, goose stepping around the place, that is actually not Germany, it's Prussia. And your next book after that, well, it must have been very unexpected success, was an obvious one to write, The Shortest History of England, another huge bestseller, written as a way, I guess, for us English to understand ourselves a bit better. I have to say it is a brilliant book and I would recommend it to anyone who wants to get an understanding of what happened in English history and how we ended up where we are. It's got revelations and fresh insights on every page, plus a lot of very useful diagrams and graphics. And the big theme in it is that everything we think and do is still massively influenced by the consequences of the Norman invasion. We, we really are, absolutely. I mean, if you look at a map of Europe in 1000 AD, it's actually very much like today. You've got, you, know, the, you can really clearly see the outlines of modern France, modern Germany, Hungary, Poland even, and of course, England. There's England, there's to the north, there's Scotland, to the west is Wales. The, the boundaries are exactly the same as now, Hadrian's Wall and Offa's Dyke. You've got Independent Ireland. And of all those countries, they all have sort of growing growing what we call the germs of a national culture, but one of them is about to be wiped out. And that's Anglo-Saxon England. The catastrophe that was visited upon the point of the English in 1066 is actually without parallel in any other culture in Europe, with the possible exception of the Russians being conquered by the Mongols and ruled by the the Mongol horde for 400 years. 
Mm. And I think that when we talk about Russia, we're really, everyone who talks about Russian history is used to the idea of saying, you know, one of the reasons they're so screwed up is that they were actually run as a colony by the Mongols for 400 years. Now, I think that we English deeply underestimate the degree to which the conquest is still like, it has echoes every single day of our lives. Because the way we talk even, and it's probably easiest, if I give you an example here, if I can, Charlie. Um, yeah, yeah, yes. Okay, this is Anglo-Saxon. We are talking about deep and weighty matters here, my friends. So we need to use words which came straight from our forefathers before the Normans stole our land. Now, every one of those words is Anglo-Saxon. So if I actually had said that speech in a kind of really stupid stage mama set, it would probably <laughs> be more or less understandable to an Anglo-Saxon. But I can also say to you, um, with such uh, profound issues, it is incumbent upon us to employ vocabulary derived entirely from the French of the conquest. Now that's also English, but it's every single word in every single noun and verb in that is from French. And what we see is that when, it, when an Englishman meets another Englishman and we open our mouths to each other, we immediately subconsciously calibrate ourselves by what language, what vocabulary are we using? So for example, everyone hates the little Jobsworth who says, <laughs> it is important to point out to you the possible consequences of your actions regarding this matter. French, okay? Everyone <laughs> loves Prince Philip going, just take the photograph, man, because that's <laughs> English. It's not actually about accent. I went to Eton recently, actually, to give them, to give them a, call, a lecture on the shortest history of England. And I said to all the boys, there, look, I know you're all going to become Tory MPs. Don't lie. So you are. And when you're canvassing <laughs> to be Tory MPs, this is what you do. You do not drop your posh accent. Don't make that mistake. What you do is you talk posh, but in Anglo-Saxon, and people will roll over on their tummies. That's so what so Boris did in the, in the, in the referendum. Yes. He goes around. He, leave, goes, leave drags out all his experts going... It is important to point out the possible consequences to the economic well-being of the country over the next... You know, but Boris just says, I see the sunlit uplands of freedom. We will be mad not to go through that door. And who are you going to vote for? You're going to vote for the guy speaking <laughs> English, for God's sake, you know? So this, the, you know, and, and it is this sort of obsession with, with plain English and plain speaking. So that's essentially English speaking rather than French speaking. Yeah, because we, we you know, so, so after 1066, people forget that it's, it's more than 400 years before the records of Parliament start to be in English again. Mm. 1488, for the next, that, that, that's, that's as long as the gap between Queen Elizabeth and now. For all that time, the entire ruling class of English spoke French among themselves. They never and, really stopped, and, actually, either. And all that sort of feeds into the idea of the southern elite, the poncy North London urban liberal elite, a French word, so that we have the likes of Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage, who, despite his suspiciously French-sounding name and being quite posh, manages to convince the English people that he's one of them by uh, uh, holding a pint in a pub and using proper English words, whereas someone like Keir Starmer is viewed with great suspicion because he's seen as part of this mealy-mouthed French elite. Uh, he's a slippery lawyer. He's not one of us. Uh, and, and I think a big theme in your book is how this Norman legacy leads us to Brexit, which is an eruption of anti-French feeling by the English, the the proper English. It's English rejecting the French. There's also an element of the English rejecting the UK, very importantly, uh, in Brexit. Right. It's a weird thing about it. Um, you actually look at the politics of, of England from the time we all got the vote in the late 19th century, or most of us anyway, most men, um, you will find a super strong tribalism within England, north and south. Mm. And, and the, the Southern English always have always voted differently from the Northern English. Uh, and, one of the, one, and, and the Northern English have tended, if you, and it was called the Liberal Party in Gladstone's day, then it was called the Labour Party. What, what I would talk about is the kind of the North English and Celtic alliance. If you look at, if just, and you can see it really easily on maps, 
just look at maps of where the seats are in elections from you know, 100 years ago till today, you will find the areas that are red for Labour are the north of England, Wales and Scotland, and the areas that are blue for Tory are the south, which no one, even Blair, can ever challenge them in. It's really strange that, that, that that's a north-south divide in England, really potent. And to some extent, Brexit was a revolt of the southern English against the whole idea of, of, of the UK with the, with the Scots and the Welsh getting a bit more money than the English by the per capita and all that sort of business. Um, we know this because there were, there were those, those crazy polls in 2019 that showed that a large majority of Tory voters were ready to destroy the UK to get Brexit, which is, mm. it was a real giveaway. And there's been this feeling around, hasn't there, that one shouldn't really talk about being English, about Englishness. One shouldn't wave the cross of St George. Uh, it's seen as being sort of virulently and unpleasantly nationalistic in a way that Scottish nationalism or Welsh nationalism or Irish nationalism isn't seen at all. I think it's a huge, it's going to be, it's going to be a huge issue in the next few years, a fascinating one because we, speaking as an Englishman, we've kind of had our identity hidden within the UK and within Great Britain first for years and years. So that, you know, the obvious one, we go back to 1966, England supporters are waving the Union Jack. There's, there's, there's no real yes. difference between being English and being British then, or, or at least English identity is happy to be just part of British identity. That stopped in 1996, famously, at the Euros. Um, and the question really is, you know, after centuries of being sort of hidden within Great Britain, then the UK, and after a thousand years of having an elite who are basically culturally different, you know, what are we really like, we English? You know, what are we? What is our image of ourselves nowadays? And it's, I have no answer to that at all. It's, it's going to be a big question uh, in the next few years because I, I suspect the end of uh, the UK is nigh. So do, do you think the idea of taking back control is essentially... <clears throat> The English trying to take back control from the Normans. I think there's a long, long tradition of that in England. There's a deep kind of a deep sense of of, um, of being a cultural, in culturally inferior in your own country. This anti-elite thing, mm. is, which which no one likes. You see, the horrible thing is, it's kind of a challenge for Democrats. Is nobody objects to an elite from your own country. You know, no one in Manchester or Liverpool is thinks it's, it's horrible that Wayne Rooney should earn, earn so much money or whatever, because he's their elite. That's not a problem. <laughs> but what no one likes ever is to be run by an elite who are different from you in their culture and the way they talk, the way they dress, the schools they go to and things like that. Because that is a weird thing. It's basically a colonial thing. So the English have been in a weird sense, actually, colonial subjects in their own country for a very, very long time. And it's not surprising, frankly, that some way or another, it happened in the Civil War as well. Mm -hmm. you know, we were the first country in Europe to actually execute our own king legally. Astonishing. Um, we're not really a kind of well-mannered posh folk at all, are we? That's the thing. That's, that's the kind of Englishness <laughs> yes. that the tourist boards push. But you go to any, any football match or any pub on a Friday night and try, and try and believe that one, you know. We are not like that at all. Um, so what are we like? Who knows? But it's going to be a really interesting to find out. Well, I'm afraid I'm probably branded as the enemy. I live in North London. I work in the media. I'm a classic old school centrist liberal. I might even describe myself as an intellectual, uh, which is not something an Englishman should ever do. I am one of the metropolitan elite. Hickson is, I think, um, a Norman name. I suppose I'm a Norman Duke in many ways, aren't I? Tofu-munching, metropolitan, latte-slurping. Yes. So to get back to William Rufus, William II, which is what we're supposed to be talking about, I mean, it's an interesting moment, isn't it? When his father, William the Conqueror, dies and everyone deserts him. They forget all about him and they run off to seize control of the different parts of his uh, mini-empire. Robert stays in Normandy to secure that, but William Rufus rushes over to England and it wasn't really a foregone conclusion that he'd get to sit on the throne and rule happily as our next king, was it? What's the most fascinating thing to me is the situation of England at this moment, because the conquest is not yet a completely done deal. And how do we know this? The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is still going on. There are still monks 
and kind of some kind of gentry sponsoring them, writing down the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And they write here, I'm quoting from it, he says, William, that's William II now, William sent after Englishmen and told them of his need, and he yearned for their support and promised them the best laws that ever were yet on this land. That's the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So William appears, says, my dad's dead, and he asks the native English to back him against his brother, who he knows is coming for him. Because Robert is now, Robert's now Duke of Normandy, which was, of course, William the Conqueror's original title. Mm-hmm. He's got that. And basically, William has a few weeks to muster his forces before his brother comes gunning for him. And he goes straight to the native English. And the fascinating thing is, we have no idea who they were. Because the, the native English, the actual aristocracy had all been wiped out at Hastings or fled in 1075. Who these people were, we just don't know. They, they were, I, we, we call them today, I don't know, community leaders of some kind. There were people, <laughs> there were people, obviously English people, still in positions of power that William could send for, talk to them and say, look, go back to your villages, tell them if they back me, Norman William, against my brother, Norman Robert, I'll give you a better deal. And did he give them a better deal than his father had? He did not. Nope, they <laughs> bought it. Rather like the peasants, rather like Richard II and the peasants. He goes, you know, you need no other king. I, uh, Captain, I am your king. Disperse peacefully, brackets, and be killed soon afterwards. So um, he's, uh, he, really, he promises that he doesn't deliver at all. As soon as, as, soon as the English have helped him overcome, uh, basically helped him uh, defeat his brother's invasion, and they do, they're, they're, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records, Englishmen breaking into various castles on, to, 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 to attack Normans in William's mm. name. But once he's taken power, like most Norman kings, right up to you know, Henry II, he just uses England as a kind of tax, tax take for trying mm. to attack Normandy, because what they're really interested in is Normandy. They just regard the English as grunts who pay taxes. Um, so no, sadly, no, their, their trust in William was badly misplaced. He did not deliver at all. And by the end of his realm, uh, everyone hated him, uh, English as well as Normans, and that's, which is when he comes to make this ill-fated hunting trip with his brother, his younger brother, who has no money at all, um, and uh, happens to die of a stray crossbow bolt, you know, at, at which point uh, Henry um, leaves the royal corpse lying there for three days and just rushes straight off to Winchester, which is at that stage where yes. the treasure is kept. And he literally grabs all the money in England and declares himself king before Robert, who's still stuck in Normandy, can have another crack. So William II wasn't popular in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles, mainly because of the way he treated the church. And, and certainly at the time, he didn't go down in history as, as being much mourned. I mean, what's the kind of modern take on, was he a good king? Was he a bad king? Can you even talk about these things? I, I would say he was, he, he'd go down in the list of, of well, he'd be called a bad king historically, largely because the church had a monopoly on who yeah. came, you know, on history writing, and they marked him down as a, as a bit of a bastard because he taxed them. Um, he's a very important king, though, because it is this vital, it's this, it's this, to go back to that moment, when he arrives in England and says, I'm a Norman, will you back me against the other Normans? That's when, for the first time, there's a division between the Normans and the Anglo-Normans. Mm. And it's the first, it marks the point, the first point in the, in the gradual, very gradual transition of, of England's Norman elite into a specifically Anglo-Norman elite. Within, within about 50 years, they're calling themselves Englais, E-N-G-L-E-I-S, in their books. It doesn't mean they're Anglo-Saxons. They're still speaking French, and only French. They probably don't speak any English at all, the top, the top rank of them. But they regard themselves as based in England as opposed mm. to based in France. So they, they start to have a genuine kind of interest in English history because this is where their states are now. They say by, because they've backed William against Robert, this means that they're, you know, they, they've, they've got to nail their colours to their English estates rather than their Norman ones. And they become more and more attached to their land, to their ownership here. It becomes more important to them. So they start to define themselves as geographically English. A bit like someone buying a, a holiday home in Italy and thinking they really ought to learn a bit about the local culture and history. A, a brilliant analogy, Sean. You know, that's exactly it, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 they, and if they stay there, their great-grandchildren will probably be accepted as Italians. Yes. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah. And, and Robert, presumably, is pretty much unknown in England. You can't have really spent any time there. 
No, not, not at all. No, he, he's, he's just constantly lurking. Uh, Robert is lurking in Normandy, first wanting to invade against his brother William and then wanting to invade against his brother mm. Henry, uh, who eventually defeats him and locks him up for life. So it's a case of better the Norman you know than the Norman you don't. Absolutely. No, that's exactly it. He's basically saying, they said, look, you know, at least you know who we are. I may, I, and I'm talking to you, OK? Yeah, I'm, with, I'm talking to you guys. Listen to me. I promise you this. I, the other guys won't even talk to you. They'll just come in and kill you. Uh, that doesn't work out. <laughs> but it does a bit with Henry the, Henry the First, of course, because when Henry comes in, when Henry makes Well, no, play, no spoilers now, because we haven't got to Henry yet. Ah, OK. No, of course not. Well, it well that, that's a fascinating tale of what... Give us a, it, give it, us it, a it, teaser it, to make people want well, to listen the to the is, next episode. Henry, having just bumped, we think, having, having, or at least having just witnessed his brother being killed yes. in the New Forest, he knows exactly what card William played in 1087. Yeah, he knows that William played the English card to mm. save it to, to, to beat Robert, and he is about to do exactly the same thing. There's your spoiler. Excellent. Well, that sets us up perfectly for our next episode on Henry. Thank you so much, James. That's been really Great fascinating. Pleasure. And I could have talked for hours about that. And I'd love to have you back in later episodes to talk about some other monarchs and, and to continue looking at that sort of ongoing idea of Englishness and, and how we think of ourselves. I'd love to come back. So that was James Hawes, author of The Shortest History of England, the only history book about England you need to read until I write my one. Next time on Willy Willy Harry Stee, we reach Harry, King Henry I. And if you thought this episode was action-packed, just wait till next time. I'll bring you a seized throne, warring brothers and a tragic shipwreck that changed the course of royal history forever. In fact, changed the course of English history forever. Follow or subscribe to the podcast now so you don't miss it when it arrives. Willy Willy Harry Stee was written and presented by me, Charlie Higson, with music by Tom Jenkins and production by Mark Jeeves. Willy Willy Harry Stee, the podcast, is the copyright of Charlie Higson, 2023. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.